0: Here we are um, back in our study in Galatians, and the title of the message today is Redeemed from the Curse of the Law. And let me just quickly remind you of the the background situation. The Galatians, of course, are Gentiles. They have uh, received Christ by faith, and God's done this beautiful, beautiful thing among them. But then these false teachers come in and they just uh, throw a wrench into everything. And they they convince them that believing in Christ isn't really enough. You also need to add uh, the component of the law of Moses. And uh, they, just, they just buy into this whole thing. And Paul basically says that they've come under a spell. Who has bewitched you that you should uh, embrace these ideas is what he's saying. Now, as as we pick up in verse ten, he is going to explain to them why their new idea is so completely wrong. Now, uh, Paul just so you remember, Paul was uh, he was not simply a Jew. Paul was a scholar. So Paul was one of the great theologians, Jewish theologians of the day. So so if there's anybody that understood uh, Judaism, Paul understood it. And of course, Paul understood the the stark difference between Judaism and the gospel. And so here, as we pick up in verse 10, he is going to instruct these Galatians, these non-Jewish Uh, believers in Christ who are now thinking that they need to become Jews to really be pleasing to God, he's going to show them why um, that is not the case at all. And how embracing the law, far from putting them in a position of um, more favor with God, actually uh, takes them in the exact opposite direction. And so he says in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So Paul says, far from Uh, having, you know, a greater blessing by bringing in the law, you actually have put yourself under a curse. Why? Because cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, Paul here brilliantly quotes from Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy was, the, the word Deuteronomy means the second law. So he's going back to the law And he's showing them that the law itself pronounced a curse upon those who did not keep it. So the only way to be blessed through the law is to keep it. And you have to keep it perfectly, and you have to keep it perpetually. And there's no uh, time or place where you can violate it and then still be blessed through it. Any violation of the law brings you under a curse. And so he takes them right back to Deuteronomy to show them the folly of their position. Now, before you proceed, there there are two major curses uh, spoken of in Scripture that we need to consider. Uh, There are several references to various curses in Scripture, but the two major ones that we need to consider are, are the one that we're looking at, the curse of the law uh, but there's also the curse of sin. And it's important that we distinguish between these uh, two things. Now, just in this context, the term curse really refers to being under divine judgment. So when he talks about the curse of the law, the, uh, or people being under the curse, he's talking about they're under the divine uh, judgment. And the so the curse of the law is one thing. That's what Paul's focusing in on here. But the curse of sin is a different thing, but it's important that we understand the distinction. So the curse of sin is the judgment that came upon the creation as a result of man's revolt against God. The Lord speaking to Adam said these words, recorded in Genesis three seventeen through 19. The Lord said, "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. "'Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, "'and you shall eat the plants of the ground. "'In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread "'till you return to the ground, "'for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, "'and to dust you shall return.'" So this is the curse of sin. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. And the curse of sin remains in effect all the way through till we come to the new heaven and the new earth. Even in the millennial reign of Christ, which is a thousand year reign of Christ that is yet to come up on the earth, the curse of sin, although it will be diminished, it will still exist. It is, no, it is not... Uh, removed until the new heaven and the new earth. Now, the curse of the law is different. And that's what Paul is talking about here in the context. And in a few minutes, I'm going to show you why it's important that we understand the distinction. But the curse of the law, as I said in verse 10, Paul quotes from uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27, verse 26. That's the reference. There's similar teaching by the apostle in the New Testament about the the true nature and purpose of the law. And Galatians, Hebrews, and Romans are the places where you're going to find this teaching mainly. So in Romans chapter three, verse 19, Paul says this. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be Stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So when Paul is referring to the curse of the law, what he's basically talking about is all who fail to live up to God's standard declared in the law are under God's judgment. Or everyone seeking justification by the law is actually under condemnation because of their failure to keep the law. So the the curse of the law is separation from God. And the final manifestation of the curse of the law is eternal separation from God. Now, the good news is that, as Paul says here, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Christ has redeemed us from this curse or the the word redeemed, the idea here is that he's brought us out from under this judgment and he's brought us into God's blessing. How has he done it? he has done it by bearing the curse for us christ became a curse for us and when it when it says that he became a curse for us it means that he bore the penalty of the curse now this is the the biblical doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of christ This, this is what we believe as Christians. We believe that Jesus died in our place. He died the death that we should have died. We are guilty. We have violated God's laws that puts us under a curse. As I said, the, the final manifestation of the curse is eternal separation from him. Jesus bore that for us. That's a doctrine of substitutionary atonement that Jesus was punished so we could go free. Now, that's, of course, what the Bible has always taught. Uh, It's what the prophets prophesied, particularly Isaiah 53. And it's what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament is 2,000 years old. It hasn't changed. It's the same. But all of that to say, there are, there, there have been, and there still are Christians today who have a problem with this, they say, well, you know, you shouldn't say that Jesus was punished for us because that makes it sound like God is angry and we know God is love and we can't imagine a God who's angry about anything. And so we, we just don't like that terminology. We don't, we don't wanna use that. Um, we spoke with a young lady on the phone recently or on the radio recently, and she asked this question. She said, you know in that song, um, In Christ Alone, where it says, and, and on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Uh, she said, you know that, is that true? And I said, yes, that is true. That's the biblical doctrine of propitiation, which means Jesus died to appease God's wrath. And she said, oh, well, I, I thought it was true, but some of my Christian friends are telling me that's not true. We shouldn't say that, God was angry with sin and his wrath had to be appeased. Well, why shouldn't we say that? Well, because that's offensive. People don't like to think of God like that, or they don't like to think of themselves like that. I don't wanna think of myself as a sinner to the extent that I deserve to be punished, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Keith Getty, who wrote that song, uh, Keith was contacted by a number of church leaders who asked him if they could change that lyric. And, and, you know, they wanted to put together a hymnal or something for their church, but they didn't want to put the lyric there that, that Keith had put because they said, Well, this is this is offensive for people, so we want to change it. They had some other substitute sentence they wanted to put in. And Keith said, Absolutely not. It says what it says. What it says is what the Bible teaches, and you do not have permission to change it at all. And so some churches decided they're not going to sing the song. Oh, this is crazy. When the church is saying, we don't like this. We don't like this theology. Well, sorry, this is what the Bible teaches. And I'm not really sorry. I'm just, (laughs) you know, the (laughs) fact of the matter is, this is just what it teaches. It's what it's always taught, that Christ Became a curse for us. Now, here we see the brilliance of the apostle. Again, remember he's want, wanting to help these poor Galatians out, who are Gentiles who have been duped by these Jewish false teachers. Paul is the he's the doctor of the law. We see his brilliance here. He quotes again from Deuteronomy, and listen to what he says this is from Deuteronomy chapter 21. He says, uh, in, when he says, cursed is everyone who is uh, hanged on a tree for it is written, or for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Here's the passage that he's actually quoting from. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree for he who is hanged is accursed by God. So Paul draws from a really, a, a relatively obscure passage, and he shows that in that instruction to not leave uh, a, a dead criminal hanging on a, on a tree, there was a message, a greater message that was being sent forth because cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus died, we, we say Jesus died on the cross, that's right, it was a cross bar, but it was made of a tree And in a few places in the New Testament, it is specifically referred to as a tree. Peter refers to it as a tree. And undoubtedly, he does that to make the connection back to the passage here. And so one little side note that we need to just point out before we move on is having to do with the The distinction between the curse of sin and the curse of the law. So I pointed that out a moment ago, right? And and this is the reason why I did that. Because of the faith and prosperity teachers. You see, these guys who we've probably all been subject to that uh, to some degree, uh, these faith and prosperity teachers, they teach that since we've been Um, delivered from the curse, we should never experience poverty. We should live in, in financial prosperity. We should never experience sickness. We should always be perfectly healthy. You know, but if you take their logic to its final conclusion, you would have to also say we should never die. We should never get sick and die. But of course, even they get sick and die. Here's the problem. They're confusing either intentionally or unintentionally. I don't know. Some, probably some unintentionally, probably some intentionally. They're confusing the two curses. We, the, the curse that brings sin and death and sickness and poverty and all of those kinds of things, that's the curse of sin. And the curse of sin is still with us. And the curse of sin will be with us until the new heaven and the new earth. So there's no escaping in one sense, the curse of sin. Yes, Jesus died to ultimately do away with that, but that time hasn't yet come. So they're, they're confused about this. The curse that Jesus delivered us from is the curse of the law, not the curse of sin. The curse of the law is eternal separation from God. So Jesus delivered us from that. So the, the, um, those who teach that all believers should be financially prosperous and physically healthy, uh, they are just simply wrong. The Bible does not teach that. And whenever they say, you know, you're no longer under the curse and you should be blessed and you need more f- faith. And they always say it that way, faith, you know, uh, <laughs> you got to have more faith. Uh, they're just simply incorrect. So we'll leave it at that. Now, Paul says here that all of this is that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, as Paul has already showed them and is gonna continue to show them because the remainder of chapter three and all of chapter four is basically Paul trying to undo what the false teachers did by showing the Galatians what the law was really all about and what it wasn't about. And at a certain point, he's gonna say, look, those of you that desire to be under the law, do you really even know what the law says? Here, let me tell you in, in one final uh, illustration is what he's gonna do as we get toward the end of the fourth chapter. But what he's, what he's doing is he's showing that the way God justifies people, the way God brings people into a right relationship with himself has never been through the law, never. It's always been through faith, and Abraham becomes the illustration. And Paul is saying to them, look, you were made right with God in the same way that Abraham was. And actually, the blessing that God promised to Abraham, you've already received it through your faith. So this idea that you somehow have to include the law is just a a completely uh, erroneous idea. Now, what is the blessing of Abraham? The blessing of Abraham is, number one, justification. And justification means that we are declared righteous before God. Justification means that our sins have been blotted out to the extent that God, when he sees us, he sees us as righteous. Uh, Our sins have been blotted out and the righteousness of Christ has been placed on our account. So if there's a ledger before God and your name's there, you know what it says? If you put your trust in Christ, uh, none of your sins are there. There's just a paid in full stamped right there. That's what it is. Jesus paid the price and his payment is uh, put on our account. So justification is part of the blessing of Abraham. But then there's also regeneration. And regeneration is a, it's a different thing, but it happens simultaneous to justification. Justification is a legal term. It talks about our legal standing before God. Regeneration is a family term. It talks about the fact that we are now born into the family of God. So this is the blessing of Abraham. We have been justified. We have been regenerated, made the children of God, and we have been given eternal life. And so we've been saved is another way to put it. Salvation has come to the Gentiles through faith just the way it came to Abraham. The law has no place in our justification. Now, I would imagine, I'm assuming that most of you here and many of you listening uh, through whatever other means, uh, I I would imagine that most of us understand that. But at the same time, I'm sure that maybe some don't quite get that yet. Uh, because it's so ingrained in us that we somehow work our way into God's favor. It is just part, it's almost like part of the human constitution. We just think that that's how it happens. And yet when we come into contact with the gospel, that's where we realize, oh no, it it doesn't work that way. But there are still many people and churches are full of people that think that somehow it's, in the end, it just really kind of comes down to how well they've done, how, how uh, well they have performed. And people give that away a lot of times by saying things like, uh, you, you know, when you ask maybe the question, well, are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying to be one. So, you, you know, are you confident that you're going to go to heaven? Well, you know, I'm, I, I hope so. I'm, I'm working at it. You see, if, if those, if that's the way you think about it, then you, you're missing the point of the gospel because it's not about that. It's about what Jesus did. So you can say with confidence, um, yes, I am a Christian because of what Jesus did. And I've just believed it. Yes, I am confident that I will go to heaven, not because I'm such a great person, not because I'm so good. And because I do so many wonderful things, I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did. And I have believed in that. So that's salvation and like I said I think most of us probably already understand that but here's the question that I want to pose to us and this is what I want to finish up with today we see clearly and Paul's main point here is that the the law has no place in our justification but here's the question what about in regard to our sanctification now what is sanctification 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 is our growth, our maturity. The word really means to be set apart. The idea is that when we believe in Christ, we're being set apart from sin to God. But another way, I think, to to kind of summarize that, it would be growing into the likeness of Christ, becoming more like Christ. So this is the question. What about our sanctification? Does the law of Moses uh, contribute to that? But I would take it beyond even the law of Moses and just ask this, uh, does the principle of law contribute to that? In other words, now that I'm saved through faith in Jesus, do I now work my way into maturity? Do I now uh, have to work to maintain my relationship with God, my, my favor with God? Do I, having received God's gift by grace, Uh, do I now come under a legal system to maintain what I received by grace through faith? And the answer is no, that's not how it works. Even though sometimes we we're we're tempted to think that sometimes we even function that way. But, But I want you to think about this with me. Anytime and I think most of us would know this is true by experience. Anytime we try to relate to God on the basis of law or works, we come under a curse. Now, we don't come under a curse um, truly or actually, but experientially, we come under a curse. Because whenever I start thinking about my relationship with God in a legal sense, then I recognize that I'm falling short of the standard of the law. I'm falling short of my own standard or the preacher's standard or the church's standard. And then I find myself under a curse. I find myself uh, feeling condemned. I find myself living with guilt. I find myself just always, you know, feeling a failure and not really sure about God's love for me. If you feel that way a lot, then it's because you're still thinking in terms of your law or your, your relationship with God. You're still thinking about your relationship with God in, ter- in legal terms rather than in terms of grace and love. So this is what we have to get away from. You see, the way to growth and maturity in our faith is by cultivating deeper love for God. That's how it works. Now, Paul, in writing to the believers in Rome, and particularly the Jewish believers there, he says to them, because they had the same sort of a thing, they kept wanting to interject the law. They kept thinking that, okay, yes, we believe in Jesus, but we gotta get the law in here somehow. That's gonna gonna benefit us, that's gonna help us. And at a certain point, Paul, he kind of says to them, it's like, okay, you want want some law? Let me give it to you. Here's the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. He said, because love is a fulfillment of the law, because love does its neighbor no harm. For all the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not commit murder. Paul says they're all summed up in this one command. Now, Paul applies that in human relationships, but you can take the exact same principle and you can apply it in our relationship with God. What is the one command that Jesus said is the great command, love God. Love God with all your heart. And if you love God with all your heart, then love does the object of its affection no harm. If I really love God, I am going to be doing the things that God wants me to do but I'm not going to be doing it because I'm legally forced to do it. I'm going to be doing it motivated by love. And that is obviously the greater motivation, isn't it? You know, we can do things uh, by legal motivation. We can do things because uh, we're, we're told to do it. And there's going to be uh, consequences if we don't do it. Legal ramifications, you better do this. But you know, I can do it outwardly, but my heart's not in it. I'm just doing it because I don't want to get in trouble. But when you do something by love, that's an entirely different thing. And that's how God wants us relating to him. He wants us to relate to him on the basis of love. And St. Augustine understood this so perfectly that he could say this in response to the question, well, you know, how is a Christian to live? He could say this, love God and do what you want. Now, some people say, really? Wow, do what I want? That's I can do whatever I want. Remember the first part, love God and do what you want. You see, here's the truth. If you love God truly, what you want to do will be the things that he wants you to do it'll be pleasing to him. And you know, when you do something out of love for somebody, it's, it's just an entirely different thing. When I do something for my children or my grandchildren or my wife, I am doing that because I love them. Not because I'm obligated. I don't do it begrudgingly. I don't do it wishing I didn't have to do it but I'm just gonna do it because you know I'm obligated to do it. But sometimes as Christians, that's how we function. No, God wants us to do it because we love him. Now, you might say, but I don't know. I don't know if I really love God that much. I don't really feel like I love God that much. Here is the good news. The good news is that God will help us to love him if we do not have the love for him that we we know we should. Paul, in in his last words to the church in Thessalonica, he said, may the Lord direct your heart into the love of God. I am so glad Paul said that. I am so glad he said that because that shows me that God is gonna help me to do what I maybe can't do on my own. I can't conjure up that kind of love for God because of just my own sinfulness, but the Lord will help me. The Lord will enable me, will instill in me that love for God. Now, as I said, the way to growth is to cultivate a deeper love for God. How do I cultivate that? How do I cultivate a greater love for God? I do that by meditating on his great love for me. See, this is how we do it. You see, as we move forward in our relationship with God, this is not the plan. God doesn't say, okay, I saved you now through Jesus. That's the gospel. Now here, here's the law or here's a set of rules. You follow this. No, God saved us through the, through the gospel, the love of Christ. And God says, basically, just keep immersing yourself. Just go deeper and deeper in this good news of the gospel. And this will produce the kind of heart in you that will translate into living to the glory of God. So that's what we do. We meditate on his great love for us. We immerse ourselves in the gospel. And what are we talking about here? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. You see, I'm, I'm convinced that so often the problem is we don't really realize the extent of who Christ is and the extent of what he did. And the more I get a hold of who he is and what he did, that reality has a tremendous impact upon my life. As I realize that, that this Jesus is God. He's God the Son who condescended to this place of being a human being. And he took upon himself not only flesh, but as Paul says in Philippians 2, he came in the form of a servant and he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death and not just any death, but the death of the cross. And he did all of this, why? He did it for me. He did it for you. And as we grasp that, as we lay hold of that, as we come to the place of marveling at that this is transformative this changes my heart and wants me to reciprocate i i want to do i want to do for jesus just a fraction of what he did for me out of love His love for me sent me to the cross. Lord, I wanna wanna show you in just a small way, somehow my love back for you because of your great love for me. John tells us that we love him because he first loved us. And the more we understand his great love, the more we are motivated and inclined toward loving him in return, which shows itself in obedience to his word. So you see the basis is not legal. The basis is love. And that is the greatest motivation and the basis that God wants us to relate to him on. So may he help us to do that. May the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God. Lord, that is our prayer. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to love you more. Lord, I pray also if there's anyone with us today, anybody listening, watching, that still is thinking in terms of doing something in order to earn their salvation And maybe they're not thinking of it proudly. They're just thinking that this is what you do. Lord, may they know today that you did it all, that you were made a curse for us, that you redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, that your blessing, the blessing of eternal life would come upon us, the blessing of Abraham would come upon us through faith. And I pray that they would, by faith, lay hold of that. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know you already. Lord, would you help us to grow, to mature, to become more and more the people that you want us to be by directing our hearts into the love of God that, Lord, we might be loving you and showing that love by obeying you. Help us, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.